Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Love you to be in Exodus 34 with me. Guys, we have uh, almost wrapped up how God reveals himself in this series called A Glimpse of Glory. This is, this is Moses's request to see God's glory. And this is God's response to that request. And we're almost at the end of how God describes himself. And, and guys, I, I, it's, it's a privilege to talk about our God. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's something I deserve to do, but it is an incredible blessing to be able to come with you and go to the throne of our God and see exactly what he's like. So I'm glad you guys have hung in there this far. Now, a few weeks back, uh, I said something that I hope you guys picked up on, and I'm going to say it again, that now, right now, in the midst of all the chaos that surrounds us in our society, in our country, in the political problems and the cultural turmoil and the societal unrest, the most relevant thing that we could be doing right now, the most relevant thing that I could be bringing us to in God's word is the very character of our God. That's the most relevant thing that we could be doing right now to answer everything that's going on out there. And, And the reason why I say that is because without us being able to understand who God is in all of his perfection and in all of his glory, you and I wouldn't have a clue in how to respond rightly to the problems that are going on in our world today. We wouldn't have a clue how to answer them. We wouldn't have a clue in how to act or to behave or what to believe if we did not first understand who our God is and all of his perfection. So that's why it's most relevant for us to be going to his character. And in that, we're getting to a part of God's character. We're speaking about a facet of his glory today that I think is probably gonna be even more relevant to what's going on in our world today with all the societal problems that we're seeing right now. And and I think the facet that we're looking at today in God's glory is actually gonna answer some of the questions that our culture is asking right now. Some of the questions that are being asked in our society because one of the main cries that we hear right now in our country, in our world, in our culture and society today, a cry that's being shouted from the streets and it's being wept over in the homes of even our own brothers and sisters in Christ. That one cry is injustice. It's injustice. Now, I'm gonna be clear first and foremost, this time, This wouldn't traditionally be called a pulpit, but we'll call it a pulpit. The pulpit is not to be used for political speeches, right? That's that's not the chief end of why I'm up here. That's not the chief end of what we're doing now. Now, to be clear, God's word does speak to social and political issues, but God's word is primarily not about social and political issues, right? God's word primarily is about a God who is Trinity three in one, who decided to reveal himself to creation. That is what this is all about. So that's what we're gonna be speaking on. And sure, as we know God, we'll see how to respond to this, but we are primarily going to get after our God. So we're going to see who God is. And one of the characteristics that we're talking about today, it's actually one that I think we take for granted the most. 
Right, the characteristic that we're looking at today that we come to next in our text is this, that God is just. That God is just. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. God is just. So this means that God is perfectly morally right in all that he thinks and all that he loves and all that he approves and all that he does. He is perfectly right. Now, in a world that doesn't accept God, mostly because he hates sin and punishes it, could you imagine a world where God wasn't just? Could you imagine a world where the tables were turned and the, and the, the morality was flipped, right? Where, where instead of, of, of God approving what is right and condemning what is wrong, he approved what is wrong and condemned what is right. Could you imagine the kind of chaos and anarchy that would just fumble out of all of that? The kind of world that we would live in if God did such things? If God accepted evil and approved of wrong? Imagine the chaos and the disorder. Imagine the destruction Imagine all that would be lost if God were unjust. But no, instead we have a God who defines what is right because he is what is right. He is just. He defines what is right and what is wrong perfectly. And he always fights for what is right against what is wrong. Which means, when I'm having breakfast with some brothers and sisters in Christ who are our own, who I have more in common with in Jesus than I do my own blood brothers, when I'm having breakfast with them and they are just heartbroken and they are grieving over the injustices that they're seeing in the world around us today, the best news for that weary soul is that we worship and serve a God who is just. Now, in light of this, there are some tough questions that get to be asked, right? Specifically about God's righteousness, about God being just. And my hope ultimately for all of us this morning is that as we walk out those doors, as we get into our cars, we won't see anything but the beauty of God being just. And I believe he can do that. And I believe he is aiming at accomplishing that this morning. So let's read the text again. We're in Exodus 34, verses six through seven. And it says, the Lord that is Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Guys, this is the word of the Lord. And it's really funny because this is one of the most quoted texts in the Bible 
It's the ones that we often talk about, right? We love to explain God being merciful and gracious, and we quote it often, and then we get to the bottom part of this, and we just start to murmur, who doesn't clear the guilty iniquity of the fathers, children, children, you know, the generational thing, we just don't talk about that. We don't talk about it, because it's uncomfortable, right? It's kind of tough, and in some ways, it seems paradoxical, right? It seems conflicting to what he just literally described himself as. I mean, he literally just said he is a God who forgives. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And when we talk about forgive, what do we mean? He's willing to pick up and carry the burden, carry the guilt himself. He forgives in that sense. He bears the weight of our iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then he says, but mm, I won't in any way clear the guilty. All right, God, now we're thoroughly confused. So he forgives, literally he carries the guilt of those guilty, but then he doesn't clear them? Like, what does that even mean? How do, how do, we, how do we work those together? Because right? we know there's no conflicting nature to God, right? He's perfectly working together. Now, I'll tell you that there are some things happening behind the scenes here in the Hebrew text that our English text just doesn't do a really good job of. So I want to kind of talk about those things first, and I think when we do, it'll help explain. So first and foremost, obviously, one key word here that we need clarity on is clear, right? Doesn't clear the guilty. What does that mean? What does it mean that God doesn't clear the guilty? Well, the word clear is probably better understood as to leave unpunished, to leave Unpunished. In other words, he forgives sin, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He forgives sin, yet he also punishes the guilty. So, well, first, this implies that God is this, right? That God is a good judge who upholds his law, right? He's a God who says, if you've broken the law, you are due to the full punishment of the law. It is a just judge, right? That's, I mean, if, if we had a judge, uh, if, you, if you went to court and there was a judge who, who condemned you for something you were innocent of, that would be an unjust judge. And we'd want him off the throne, right? But no, we have a God who is just. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. He's a good judge in this. God is just. He's righteous. He's a morally perfect judge. He commends what is right and he condemns what is wrong as he's defined it. But then we get to this paradox, right? Where the the, the two ideas are clashing, where how, how, how can God be both forgiving and punishing the guilty? How can, how can God forgiving and punishing the guilty work together in God? Well, here's another thing that's happening in the Hebrew that the English doesn't translation, translation doesn't really work out well for us. The words clear the guilty, the the guilty, right? Circle the the guilty in your Bible because in the Hebrew, those words aren't even there. In the Hebrew, those words aren't there. So the most literal reading of this word is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will not leave unpunished. Doesn't, Doesn't go on to say the guilty, but will not leave unpunished. In other words, The subject of God not leaving unpunished is not the guilty. It is the sin, the transgression, and the iniquity that he just spoke about. So if anything, it says, will not clear the iniquity, circle that, or clear, go back to iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's, That's the subject of not being cleared. In other words, God will forgive sin, 
but he won't not punish sin. If he were not to punish sin, then he wouldn't be just. So how do these two perfections work so perfectly in God at the same time? Enter Jesus, right? Think about it. Jesus is the key to understanding all of this. Let's, let's take a look at Romans 3, 23 through 26. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? This was to show God's righteousness, his justness, right? That's righteousness and justness are the same thing. This was all to show God being just because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be, what? Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God put Jesus forward to show the perfect balance of him forgiving sin and still punishing it. To show that he is just and at the same time able to justify the guilty, able to declare right those who have been condemned by the law. So already in Exodus 34, we're getting yet again another glimpse of the need for Jesus. God is already foreshadowing the fact that he will condemn sin in a sacrifice and an atonement for sin in a perfect spotless lamb. That is Jesus. Already we're seeing Jesus show up because in Jesus Christ, God both forgives the guilty and punishes the guilt. He became sins in us, or sorry, in him, we became the right, I'm quoting this all bad, aren't I? Yeah. He who knew sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. So in other words, God really is just. God really is just. And it's amazing to see how he worked all of this out in his infinite wisdom and he showed his justness in high definition on the cross. We see it perfectly displayed there. So are you tracking with me so far? Just go ahead and nod your head, even if you're still asleep. Because what we just ate is dessert compared to what we're about to have to digest. Because God goes on to describe himself as something even harder to process through. This is, this is what he says. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Now keep in mind, that's in contrast to the thousands of generations that he shows love to. So this part right here, again, is like the part of that food buffet, you know, at Golden Corral, where you just always skip it because you don't like how it tastes. You know it's probably good for you to eat, but you're just like, nah, I'm going for the sweet stuff. I'm going for the stuff that I love to eat. This is the part that it's hard to digest. I mean, how do, how do we understand this? How, how, do we, how do we work through this? I mean, typically we would look at this and just 
at first glance, if, if you don't know any better, you would just say, okay, God punishes children for the iniquity of the fathers. Right? God punishes children for the iniquity of the fathers. I mean, you could read this and come to that conclusion. Like, so, for example, if my dad were to have an affair because he all of a sudden just gave up on his morality, he had an affair, he divorced my mom, he became a drug dealer and a gang member, he became an embezzler and a murderer, and he just did everything that he wanted. Are you saying that I'm responsible, that I'm guilty, that I'm the one to be punished for him? Is that, is that right? Is that what this is saying? Well, I'll tell you one thing. The religious leaders in Jesus' day sure thought so. Although if anybody joined a gang, it looked like Jesus' 12 disciples rolling 12 deep, right? No. I mean, the religious leaders taught generational punishment for sin. Even, even the disciples, Jesus' 12, thought the same thing because that's what they've been taught. Right? You remember the, 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 the man born blind from birth? And, and, and the disciples, Jesus' own, go up to Jesus and say, hey, was it the parents' sin that caused this man to be born blind? Because that's all they knew. They had to kind of come up with an explanation for why this guy was suffering. They thought, well, maybe it's the parents' sin on him. Maybe God was, 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 was punishing him for their sin. And what was Jesus' response? Like, nah, nope, that's not how that works. You've been misled. <laughs> That's not, that's not how this thing works. That's not just. Guys, there are several passages in the Old Testament that confirm sin isn't punished generationally, right? So let's look at Deuteronomy 24. It says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Or what about Ezekiel 18? The, guilt, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Right? So it's very clear. And some of you, yeah, you're, you're looking pretty relieved because, man, you got some generational skeletons in your closet, right? You got some, some people who messed up along the way. Right? And you're, you're concerned. And some of you are even concerned about your own kids because of the own stink coming from your closet. But no, that's not what this is saying. Your children will not be punished for your sin because God is just. But again, what does this really mean? What does it mean that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? Let's just just take it at face value. Again, we've got to understand what it means by visiting. There's another key word there. What does it mean that he visits it means so many different things, but I think the, the, the way that we could understand this best is to hand over or to see. To hand over. Kind of like you saw in Romans 1, where he, he, he said, all right, I'm just going to hand this over to you. Or I'm going to see this in every generation. I mean, what is it that God's handing over from generation to generation? What is it that God literally sees from one generation to the next? The word there is what? What does he see? The iniquity. Remember, we talked about that last week, iniquity being the the crookedness, the bent out of shapeness. 
that which was once supposed to be straight now veering off in the wrong direction. That's what gets handed down from generation to generation where there is no repentance. In other words, God punishes sin that continues to be repeated down through generations as learned from the generations prior to it. So there's two ways that this works out. The first way is that punishment for sin doesn't dry up in a previous generation so then the morality of the next generation can be whatever it wants. In other words, God would still define sin as sin and still hate sin from generation to generation because he is just. His morality doesn't change. His morality never shifts. What he defines as right will be right across the generations. What he defines as wrong will be wrong across the generations. Guys, one of the most common phrases that's happening today, one of the most common ideas that's being shared today is that our morality needs an update. In our society, we need to download the latest update to our morality because it's not functioning well for what we want. But that's not how morality works because it's tied to God being just. Because God is just, morality doesn't change. We don't get to rewrite what is right and wrong in God's eyes. Because if we do, then we're redefining God. So like, I've got an iPad here, right? And every, every now and then, Apple just wants to update it, sends the latest update to where, now I guess it's tracking coronavirus, <laughs> which is weird. It receives this update. Guys, our morality isn't a device that needs to be updated. Oh, you didn't get the latest update from God? Yeah, stealing's like totally fine now. No, he doesn't doesn't do that. God's perfect, beautiful justice will always stay the same from generation to generation. In other words, iniquity will be defined as iniquity throughout the generations. And praise God that it does. Because you could, I mean, you could imagine the kind of chaos that would come whenever morality changes from generation to generation, right? So much for me trying to teach my kids the way of the Lord, because apparently it changed. Apparently what's right and wrong, I can't, well, no, all right, God, what's the latest? No, God's perfect, beautiful justice will always stay the same from generation to generation. That's, I think, what this is talking about at first. How God defines sin and how he punishes it will carry through the generations, which means the gospel stays the same throughout the generations. Now, that's, that's, I think, one way how this lands. With God being just, our morality doesn't change. We don't have to update it. Now, that may sound old-fashioned, but it's logically consistent, Okay? Now, at the same time, in light of this, right, there's something even bigger happening in this text, and it's even harder to digest. When God showed it to me, it, like, kicked me in the gut, because it's heavy, because here's what else I believe is, is being said here. It's kind of behind the scenes. 
this basically one's generation, one generation's sin will affect and shape the next. One generation's sin will affect and shape the next generation. So guys, this narrows all the way down from a whole generation to single families with parents and their children. Now, before we go further on this, I wanna be very careful here because I know that some of you in here have children who have gone wayward. They're not saved, they're not walking with the Lord, they've rebelled against what you tried so hard to instill in them in the ways of the Lord and trusting in him. And guys, I don't want to put on you anything that the Bible doesn't put on you. I mean, you you and I have to remember, we already talked about this, Hadley, Joel, and Isaac, my, my kids, they're going to be held accountable for their own souls and their own lives. They will not be held accountable and punished for my sin. We already clarified that. That's not how this plays out. We don't have to own that. I mean, trust me, your children are already good enough sinners in and of themselves. You don't have to teach them a thing and they already know how to act up. Just the other day, my two-year-old kid, two years old, just sister was taking something from him. He hulked out and literally just like socked her right in the chest. I did not teach him that. I definitely didn't model that. He just born with that nonsense. I didn't do anything to do that. He's already good enough of a sinner in and of himself. So don't own this, right? There's, there's parts of this that we can't own, and yet there's a part of this that we have to own. And the part that we have to own is realizing that my sin, in some way, directly or indirectly, will affect and shape my children. One generation's sins will affect and shape the next. So let's talk about that. Let's, what do we mean by affecting? Because there's a difference between affecting and shaping. Right? Guys, we have to realize that our crookedness, our iniquity has collateral damage. Right? I mean, right now, I'm, I'm just going to be totally forward with you guys and, and confess this. One of the most frustrating sins in my life, one of the most frustrating iniquities and crookedness that I see in my own life is my addiction to entertainment. Literally taking out my phone, which I'm grateful it's over there, taking out my phone and sitting on it for hours just to escape from the world around me. And I withdraw. Guys, oftentimes, I I, I don't know why, I'll, I'll be on the phone after dinner because apparently I've had a long day after my wife has been with our kids for eight hours in the day and I've been able to be here with people that I love and easy, right? But I, I, I get at, after dinner, I go sit on the couch for a little bit and I hop on my phone. And there are times when Hadley, my oldest, who loves to spend time with me, who's always, always asking, hey, daddy, can we go play? Daddy, I, I wanna spend time with you. Oftentimes she has to come up to me and say, daddy, could you please get off your phone? So guys, my my addiction, my iniquity is affecting my kids. I'm communicating something to them that I don't intend to communicate. 
I'm communicating to them that they aren't the highest priority. I'm communicating to them that if my phone buzzes or beeps, like that, it gets my attention over them and it steals me away from the time that they rightly deserve with me. So guys, my sin is already affecting my kids and I'm only six years into being a father. My sin affects my children and so does yours. I say this in all love. Guys, divorce profoundly affects children in deep ways. Anger that expresses itself in abuse, selfishness that expresses itself in neglect, lust that's in adultery, pride that's in poor parenting, and so much more all affects our kids, whether it's directly or indirectly. And not only will it affect them, but it will shape them. So parents, I don't know if you've had that kind of wake-up moment where you've been going throughout your day and your kid says something, a phrase that you say all the time because you've just gone cold to it, and then when they say it, coming out of a four-year-old mouth, you're like, whoa, I, re- woo, I need to stop saying that. Mm, that's not good. I don't want to hear that out of you. Right? They, they do that. They, they, they pick up on our good things, but they also pick up on our bad things. Those little ways where we're just totally inconsistent. Those little hypocrisies in our hearts. Our kids see them and it shapes them. Now, even though my kids won't give an account for my sin, my sin does shape them in ways that break my heart. And if you don't believe me, then why do you think psychologists have talked about cycles of abuse, cycles of neglect, cycles of addiction? So like for example, when like just a total moron of a father decides that he's gonna lay hands on his wife or his kids just to intimidate them and to express his authority, that same kind of moronic behavior statistically shows that those kids will also do the same thing in their wives or their husbands and their kids. When, when parents get divorced, statistics speak, statistically speaking, children of divorce are more likely to divorce as adults. And you know, it's actually called a phenomenon by psychologists today. It's, I've actually got the name of it here. It's called intergenerational transmission of divorce. It's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon happening in our society today. I mean, statistically speaking, parents who drink heavy usually have children who grow up to drink heavy. Guys, I, I could just keep going all day. I mean, there's a whole website dedicated to the generational issues that get passed along. And, and I don't have to appeal to statistics. I can, I can literally just say, hey, let's look at the word of God and we'll see it in there. You remember Father Abraham? You know, the guy who had many sons? Remember how he deceived twice, he deceived kings into believing that his wife was his sister just to protect his own life? Deception was his thing. So of course, if this be true, 
Deception becomes Isaac's thing, right? Isaac does the exact same thing. He tells the king that his wife is his sister so he can spare his own life. And because deception is Isaac's thing, deception becomes Jacob's thing. Remember how Jacob deceived his dad into thinking that he was a hairy man, Esau, to steal the birthright? Not done yet. That's only three. We've got a fourth one to go. Because deception was Jacob's thing. Deception becomes his son's thing. What do they do? They sell Joseph's favorite, or uh, Jacob's favorite, Joseph, into slavery, and then they deceive their dad into believing that he had been killed. Deception, four generations in a row. Do you see the progression, though? Do you see it intensely growing, the severity of it increasing? Guys, we see it with David and Solomon, right? David with Bathsheba, Solomon with his 700 concubines. We see it with Judah and their sons, with the kings of Judah and their sons. Guys, my sin will shape the sin of my children. And guys, this isn't just simply for parents with children. It's not that. It's also for generations. Teachers, lawmakers, grandparents, any kind of role where you have influence over the life of someone younger than you, you carry the same kind of influence. Guys, this can be whole generations. So for example, I mean, the, the sexual revolution is, is what's being called, what's happening in our world today right now, happening in our society. And, and a lot of analysts took a look at the sexual revolution that's happening, and they're trying to identify where it began, and you know where it started? Back in the 1980s, when they legalized no-fault divorces. Some lawmakers got together, right? They got together and decided that it would be okay to reduce marriage and sexual intimacy down to a personal preference. Not a commitment, not a covenant, not relationship, just your personal preferences. And then when you don't want that preference anymore, there's no consequence for you to just bail out of it. The sexual revolution, analysts say, started when we decided that sexual intimacy was just something that you could enjoy not in the context of covenant relationship. And now, sex is just a transaction of temporary pleasure in our generation between whoever you want it to be with no commitment, with no relationship. Guys, this holds true to not simply just parents with children, but whole societies and generations. Because at one point, the morality of our country shifted. And that one decision had drastic impacts on generations 30 years ago, 30 years later. 
our sin, our understanding of morality will shape the next generation. So therefore, when you and I see crookedness around us, when we see iniquity that is unjust, whether it's in our society or in our systems, it is likely a generational issue where there has been no repentance. And you know the only thing that can break cycles of sin from one generation to the next is when Jesus invades a person's soul and sets them free. Amen. Which is why none of us should feel hopeless in a world of injustice because we have a living hope. The blood of Jesus conquers all sin and judgment for those who believe. So the generations to come can be set free from our iniquity in Jesus, whether that's a single family or a whole society. So what you and I need to believe about God is that he is just and he is good in his justness and he is worth following and worth understanding. And that because God is perfect in his justness, he will bring all things to justice. And in that, we need to understand that because God is just, he even uses his own people to express his justness. He often uses his people to accomplish just that, which is why the prophet Micah says, seek justice. Seek justice. Fight for what is right, no matter the cost to you. Because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He fought for what is right. And when we seek justice because we want to be just, just like our God is just, when we seek justice and love mercy, we're seeking the very character and glory of our God who is just. So maybe that's one way where we need to see God today. That he is just. Let me pray for us. Father, we recognize that for you to be just, all sin must be accounted for and the ledger cleared. And apart from Christ, we would simply just be children of wrath. Our sin would still remain on us. And the burden of it would weigh too heavy. And yet God, because you are such an awesome God, you determined that you 
would forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you wouldn't leave it unpunished, but you would send your son to die on the cross so that sin would be punished and the guilty would go free for those who would believe in Jesus. So God, I praise you that you are just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. I pray for anyone in here who has been carrying the burden of their guilt and shame for far too long and they need to be relieved. God, I pray that you would draw them to the cross and help them see that in your justness, you justify the guilty. You declare right the sinner and give them a new identity of saint and son of God. So I pray, Father, that you would help us see just how beautiful you are in you being just. And may we as your church be the embodiment of justness. May we always seek it. May we always seek you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys would stand, I'd love to send you out with a blessing. Church, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord smile at you. And give you peace as he brings his presence always ever before you. As he goes before you, stands behind you, and walks within you. In the morning and in the evening, in your coming and in your going. May God always be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.